Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. When I was in the ninth grade, I was talking to a friend who told me that she no longer believed in God. She was upset because uh, her boyfriend's father had died of brain cancer. And she said that she was, she said, I'm mad at God for letting that happen. And even in the ninth grade, in my ninth grade foolishness, I realized the irony of that. How can you be angry with a God that you don't believe in? But I think that really encapsulates the bipolar nature of the believer when it comes to the question of God. Uh, Frederick Beekner quoted the headline from a tragic newspaper account, quote, boy kills father, comma, still wants him, end quote. He says that's how many feel about God. Armand Nikolai it was, uh, is a, uh, a professor at Harvard Med School, and he wrote what I think is a pretty insightful book called The Question of God. It's kind of cerebral, but if you like that kind of thing, you might want to pick it up. The Question of God by Armand Nikolai. And in it, he does a comparison contrast between Sigmund Freud and C.S. Lewis. And he noticed in his class that the Christians in his class just seemed to do better at dealing with the complexities of life. And he wondered about that. And then as he began to study it, he realized that there was a contrast there between Sigmund Freud's life uh, and uh, C.S. Lewis. But, but he also discovered something that he pointed out in his book, and that was that even though Freud was an avowed atheist, he still always kind of had this constant tension with some value or belief in God. Um, here's what he said. Freud's arguments were militantly hostile to God's existence, yet his logic pre- uh, predicted ambivalence. Reflecting this ambivalence, he himself remained preoccupied throughout his life with the question of God's existence. He was indeed preoccupied with the, quote, infantile, quote, fairy tale of God's existence. Now, this may come as a surprise to some readers of Freud, but it is true. The evidence lies in his letters. Freud's daughter, Anna, the only child to carry on his work, once said to me, and this is Nikolai talking, if you want to know my father, don't read his biographers, read his letters. A careful reading of his letters reveals some rather surprising, if not perplexing, material. First, Freud frequently quoted from the Bible, both the Old and New Testaments. In his autobiography, Freud writes, My early familiarity with the Bible story had, as I recognized much later, an enduring effect upon the direction of my interest. That's Freud writing. Second, the letters written throughout his life are are replete with words and phrases such as, quote, I pass my examinations with God's help. If God so wills, the good Lord, taking the Lord to task, into the keeping of the Lord, until after the resurrection, quote, science seems to demand the existence of God, God's judgment, God's will, God's grace, God above. If someday we meet above in the next world, my secret prayer, in a letter written to Oscar Pfister, Freud writes that Pfister was, quote, a true servant of God and was, quote, in the fortunate position to lead others to God. Nikolai says, what does this mean? He said, can we not dismiss this as merely figures of speech common in English as well as in German? Yes, if it were anyone but Freud. But Freud insisted that even a slip of the tongue had meaning. What an irony that Freud, an avowed atheist, 
had a Freudian slip when it came to discussion of the issue of God. C.S. Lewis uh, said this of his life before Jesus. I was living like so many atheists in a whirl of contradictions. I maintained that God did not exist. I was also very angry with God for not existing. That's the world we live in. And that's the way of the non-believer. We pray to a God that we don't even know. We pray to a God we don't even believe in. I mean, I did. I had no clue who God was. I had no relationship. I never thought about God for five seconds except that I wanted to make sure He didn't do something really harmful to me. But other than that, uh, I lived my life except when I got into trouble. And when I got into trouble, even though I was a non-believer, I would always pray. Now, most of the time when non-believers pray to God, they do this, uh, they like to play the game, let's make a deal, right? God, if you'll get me out of this trouble, here's the deal. I'll start going to church. I'll give money. Uh, I'll talk nicer to my kids. I'll stop smoking dope. I'll do whatever you want, God. Just get me out of my trouble. But I wasn't a let's make a deal kind of prayer. I was more of a cardboard sign guy. I didn't try to negotiate with God or make any kind of deal with God. I just said, God, I need this right now. You got to come through for me. That was my kind of praying. So it would work out like this. God, I got to get an A on this test. Now, okay, admittedly, I didn't go to class and I didn't listen when I did and I didn't do my homework and I didn't study. But if I don't get an A on this test, I'm going to get a horrible grade in this class and my dad's going to kill me. God, you know, I don't know. You got any spare A's laying around? You could like throw my way. Could you give a brother a hand? That's my cardboard prayer, non-believing prayer, right? And then I take the test and I bomb it. What happens now? Thanks a lot, God. I can't count on you for anything. You know, if you can't count on God for a grade, what can he really do for you, right? And that's the way we as non-believers kind of relate to God. It goes back and forth. My only real interest in God was how to get something from Him. And if He doesn't do what I want, then I get ticked off. And to be honest, that's where I expected Solomon to land on this relationship thing with God. You see, Solomon of Ecclesiastes is a long way from the Solomon of Proverbs. He has chased every excess available. He's done all the things that the hedonist and the Epicurean and the Stoic would say would bring value to your life. He's got hundreds of the most beautiful women in his harem. He has more money. Uh, they estimate two, $2 trillion in, in valued assets. He's got more money than anybody could ever have. He's pursued you know, drugs. He's pursued sex. Um, he's gone after material possessions. He's delved into wisdom thinking that knowledge was the answer. And he's filled his head up with all the great learning of his time. And then he delved into all the various religions. And he began to explore all the religions of his day. And he even married women who had those religious backgrounds. And they carried his heart away, the Bible says. And then he brought their false religion into Israel so that people are worshiping false gods. This is how far Solomon of Ecclesiastes is from the Solomon that we knew from Proverbs. And then he backs up and he assesses the burned over landscape of his life. And where he thought there would be justice, all he can see is injustice. And his cynicism grows. Where he thought that he would find satisfaction, all he finds is 
dissatisfaction and his angst grows, right? And where he thought that wisdom and knowledge was the answer to every problem, he, he just becomes um, just burned out over the thought that the more he learns, the less he knows. And he realizes that's not the answer either. And so Solomon drifts into this dark cynicism. Solomon of Ecclesiastes is a classic postmodern nihilist. He says everything is meaningless. He says that repeatedly over and over and over in this text. And so when the subject of worship comes up in chapter 5, I just automatically assumed that he would go at it like every other non-spiritual person. But he didn't. And I, I read verses 1 through 8 of chapter 5, and I'm like, wait, what? How can a life that's gone so wrong be so clear in his understanding of what it is God wants from us in worship. And so I struggled with this. I was like, how did how this happen? How did he come to this moment of clarity and truth? And here's, here's what kind of helped me. I, I, I began to picture Solomon, you know, uh, seeking solace in some local dive surrounded by, you know, barfly nincompoops. And while he's just sort of drowning his sorrow at the local bar, these, the subject of religion comes up, you know. And then the ignorance begins to flow like the beer and wine they've been drinking. And one of them says, and you've probably been in a situation just like this. I mean, I have. I've heard these exact things. One of them says, you know, me and the man upstairs, we made a deal sometime back. I don't mess with him. He don't mess with me. Somebody else said, you know, I ain't afraid to go to hell. I want to go to hell. That's where all my friends will be. You ever heard that? Somebody else said, I don't go to church. It's full of hypocrites. Somebody smiled and said, well, buddy, there's always room for one more. You know, I mean, you can make it up there. Uh, someone says uh, the ignorance really starts to flow at that point. It don't matter what God you pray to as long as you pray to somebody because we all go in the same place anyway. And finally, the prosperity guy kicks in. He goes, God will give you every, whatever you want as long as you believe hard enough. And he smiles through a toothless grin and pulls out his empty bare pockets and says, who's buying the next round? There's this line in 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen. Paul uses this expression. I love this expression. For you suffer fools gladly. It's in the KJV, the King James. For you suffer fools gladly. I love that phrase. And I, and I think what happened here is that as all of this ignorance and this cacophony of fools is sort of swimming around in the air, Solomon finally becomes so fed up with the nonsensical things that he's hearing that he somehow finds himself back on the firm foundation when he knew God and walked with God and was taught the things of God by a father whose heart was inclined to God. And the fog of all of the uh, stuff, the carnality and the excess that had become such a mark of his life suddenly began to clear. And Solomon delivers a seamless, accurate depiction of authentic worship to silence the fools. 
I can't tell you how important this is for us because we live in a world where everybody's got some idea about what it is to worship God. But in the process of that, they have forgotten who he really is because at the end of the day, it comes back around to this. When it comes to authentic worship, it's not about you. And that's the hardest thing for us to come to terms with because like everybody else around us, we either want to make a deal with God, we want God to do something for us, but it's always back around to what God can do for me. And that's not the nature of worship at all. The word worship means to ascribe worth to. In fact, the the New Testament Greek word is proskuneo. It means to lick the hand. It it literally means to dog to or to dog toward. It's the idea of how a dog responds to his master when the master comes in and sits down in his chair and the dog approaches him with reverential love and licks his hand. That's the idea of worship. It's not about us. And, And Solomon, even in the foggy haze of of all of the postmodern cynicism that had come to mark his life, he lays that down. And it really comes down to this. When, in, in worship, we're either, and, and probably both, we should be seeking God's face and seeking God's will. And so it starts with that first one. When seeking God's face, be reverent. That's what he says. Look at verse 1. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God. You got that? Guard your steps. This is an exhortation against a casual swagger. Now look, it doesn't mean that we can't enjoy fellowship. It doesn't mean that on the front end as we come in, we're unpacking our bags and we're, we're kind of uh, catching up on the day and the weekend. And what a football game, right? Can you believe it? Back and forth all night long. And, and finally, they miss that field goal and ULM wins, right? What a game. Was there another game? <laughs> Let's unpack that, though, when we come in here. We're dealing with stuff that's so much higher than that. I got some bad news for you. All those teams that that you love that won yesterday, they're going to win later. They're going to lose later, okay? And it won't make a bit of difference in your life. Let's, Let's focus on what's eternal. That's what he's talking about. Guard your steps. And this isn't about not wearing blue jeans to church, you know. I I get that sometimes, you know. Uh, I... It's not about dressing casual. The point here, this is about the heart, not your clothing. It's about your attitude, not your attire. When you come before the Lord, He's not saying dress up. He's saying be reverent. He's not saying get fancy. He's saying get low. That's what He's saying. Guard your steps. And look, you can be reverent and casual. The people following Jesus, they didn't dress up. They just came as they were. In fact, the religious people are the ones that want people to be what they're not. And so they're kind of pushing them. You know, the the message of the Pharisees of Jesus' time was, you need to fix your life if you plan to come before God. And the exact opposite's true. We come before God and God fixes our lives. But we come before God with reverence. Guard your steps, he says, as you come near to God. Um. You're in the presence of the holy, and we bow before him in worship. 
It's not, it's not to be a monastery, but, but there needs to be reverence. And then he says, guard your tongue and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifices of fool, for they do not know that they're doing evil. And it seems these days everybody's got strong ideas about who God is and what he expects, and everyone is more than willing to share their opinion. And when things don't go their way, they're either going to complain or criticize or be demanding, you know. But everybody's talking. What's that old line out of that song, everybody's talking at me, but I don't hear a word they're saying? Be careful when you come to God. Don't be so quick to share your ignorance. You know, I had a a very significant man one time tell me, he said, whenever you're in the presence of someone truly significant, don't talk, listen. I mean, I've always tried to remember that. Because sometimes when we come into presence of somebody significant, we want to impress them and make them realize that we're significant too, right? And so we want to start talking, but in the process, you, you, you miss what that person could give you. And so you need to stop talking and listen because that significant person has some insights there that you could probably benefit from. And that's especially true when it comes to worship. Draw near to listen. God is speaking. This is important stuff. Swindoll said this, and I think it's so true. To have a great message from to have great messages from God, there must be a well-prepared spokesman, and there must be an equally well-prepared congregation. They work in tandem with each other. In other words, it's you got to have a speaker who's well-prepared. But you also have to have people who are prepared to receive, to listen. You know, I can't tell you how many times retreat guys have come up to me and said, you know, I think you're a better preacher now that you've been to retreats. And you know what? That may be true. I hope it is. Everything about me wants to be a better communicator of the word. I want to be more accurate. I want to be more practical. But I suspect I'm really not a better preacher. I suspect what's happened since they've been to the retreat is God has opened their heart and they're better listeners. And they're able to receive What used to not be interesting to them is now interesting. And that's what he's calling us to do. Guard your steps, guard your tongue, and remember who you're dealing with. Look at verse 2. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. I mean, sometimes we're too quick to issue our demands and complaints as if God was a tardy servant at a restaurant and our tea glass was empty, you know? For God is in heaven, verse 2, and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. God is in heaven. He's not saying He's distant and He's far away and you're on earth. He's saying He's elevated and you aren't. And, And what He's trying to get at is for them to understand we need to remember who we're dealing with. There's this beautiful verse in Psalm 46, verse 10. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. He says, cease striving. That word means stop, quit, be still. You ever have a kid who's just like lost his mind? Yeah, you, parents, they just get into a state, you know. Maybe they had a fight with their sister and they're just like losing their minds or their little brother bit them or, or you know, a girlfriend broke up with them or whatever's going on. Or maybe they did something and you caught them and they're terrified of what's coming and they're trying to give you every excuse. And it's like, and they're talking and going at it. And you're going, listen, listen, listen. And you're going, look at my chin. Y'all ever do that? Look at my chin. 
and you're doing everything you can to grab, except grab their little head and go, look at me and stop. That's what Psalm 4610 is saying. Stop. Cease striving. The King James says, be still. And be still in what? And know that I am God. Become aware of the majesty of the holy. Become aware of the sovereignty of God and realize he's bigger than you. His ways are higher than yours. His knowledge is deeper than yours. And bend yourself to his will. Don't treat the Holy One as if He were common. There's a healthy reverential fear of the sovereignty of God. God is holy and He demands to be treated as holy and we forget that at our own peril. Let me say something to you. I fear God. Do you fear God? It's like, I know that's a crazy idea to some people today because they're taught not to fear anybody. I fear God. You're like, but God's our Father. I feared my Father. There was a healthy, reverential fear of my father. I loved my father, but I respected him, and I feared him, and I fear God because he's holy. And man, I read stories in the Bible where somebody didn't treat God as holy, and it wasn't wasn't pretty. You do so at your own peril. Guard your steps. Guard your tongue. Remember who you're dealing with. And when seeking God's will, be deliberate. For the dream comes through much effort, and the voice of a fool through many words. You know, finding God's will is the second most important thing of coming. First of all, I want to I know His face. I want to I seek His face. But secondly, I want to seek His will. And so here's the question we all need to ask. God, what do you want me to do with my life? Uh, I don't know of a more important question to ask. Uh, but when you ask it, you have to listen. So you stay teachable. Notice He says it again. When you come to worship and seek His will, don't talk all the time. Normally, when we come before God and talking about our will, we want to share our dream, right? You ladies, you want to tell Him your dream. Here's your dream. God, I have a dream of being a multimillionaire with a smoking hot husband who takes care of the kids, rubs my feet, and does the dishes. That's my dream, God. And some of y'all are so disappointed in God because He's not smoking hot. He won't rub your feet and he won't hardly ever do the dishes. And so you can live frustrated lives. And and a lot of times when we're negotiating like that, we'll say, and God, okay, God, here's my dream. You know, I remember when I started preaching, okay, God, here's what you want from me. Um, I'll be the next Billy Graham. Okay, I'll surrender to that. And uh, look, if I got to go to India ever so often, I'll do it, okay? But that's how we negotiate. I listen to these kids giving their life dream at graduation stuff, and they'll tell what they want to do. They want to be a doctor, and they want to go to uh, LSU, and they want to graduate, and then they want to do this, and then they want to take mission trips to help, you know. And I think the mission trip thing is sort of a hook to kind of get God on your side, right? And then we begin to tell God why all these things are important. God, it's important that I'm a multimillionaire, because think of all the good things I could do with that money. Like when I win the Powerball... What's it up to now? 1.6 billion? Is it the Powerball? Is that what it's called? If I win the Powerball, God, I'm going to pay off all the church's debt. And I'm going to hold you to that. If anybody in here wins the Powerball, you got to pay off our debt. If I hear you won the Powerball and we still have debt, I'm going to, I'm going to tell God on you. <laughs> That's what we do. 
Here's the problem. You're not really asking for his dream. You're just trying to gain support for your dream. Proverbs 16.9, the mind of man plans its way, but the Lord directs his steps. You see that? God's got a plan for you, and your job is to discover his plan, join him in it, stay humble, be, be, pay, be disciplined, be, be teachable, and then be patient. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. And this is the hard part. It comes through effort. It doesn't happen. Fix me, God. Fix my family. Fix my kids. Fix my life. Fix my marriage. Give me an instant solution. And God's going to work in your life. But sadly, it's seldom instant because He's more concerned with what you're going through than getting you out of what you're going through. He's more concerned with what, what going through it does to you than He is in getting you out of that. And you see this uh, repeatedly. The dream comes through much effort. How old was Abraham when he had Isaac? Does anybody know? A hundred. I mean, I think of that and I go, that's no dream, that's a nightmare, right? You got it. Anybody in here want to have a kid at a hundred? You know, I mean, we had a fear for a long time that, that Amy would go in the Guinness Book of World Records as the oldest mother, you know, that something like that might happen. A hundred? But you look at the lives of these guys. You know, Jacob worked seven years for uh, Rachel. And then Laban tricked him, gave him Leah, weak-eyed Leah. So he worked seven more years, and then seven years, 21 years before he was on his own. Joseph was 13 of his first 30 years in prison. Moses was 80 when he saw the burning bush. David waited half of his young life to receive the kingdom. You, you, you catch the dream, you pursue the dream, you just need to realize that there's bigger things involved than just what you want, and the dream comes through effort, and you got to keep your commitments. That's the next thing. When you make a vow to God, don't be late in paying it, for He takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. And then he says this, it's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. That's a tendency when we're negotiating with God. God, I'll do this. And then, and then it happens. It's like the guy that was late for a business meeting. Did you hear about this guy? And he, 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 he had to be there on time or he's going to miss the job opportunity. So he pulls in the parking lot. He can't find a parking place. So he prays to God, God, if, if you will open up a parking place, I'll go to church for the rest of my life and I'll serve you faithfully. Just please open a parking place. He turns a corner and there's a parking place. He says, uh, never mind, God, I found one. That's what we do. It's better not to vow than to vow and not pay it. And somewhere in the recesses of the human soul, there's this inherent tendency to try to manipulate God. No cheap vows, please. Count the cost. Look at verse 5. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Jesus said, count the cost. Look at it carefully. Seek God's heart deliberately. Don't try to manipulate Him with some cheap, phony commitment. Do not let your speech cause you to sin and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God, it was a mistake. In Proverbs, he says, don't call something holy and then afterward make inquiry. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Look at this, verse 7. For in many dreams and in many words, there is emptiness. Here it is. Here's the end. Rather, fear God. Fear God. Talk is cheap. Manipulation doesn't work. The only way to relate to Him is on His terms. Isn't it an amazing thing that Solomon, this sack of contradictions, living in the fog of the postmodern mind, 
was able through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to come to this beautiful clarity to remind us once again, it's not about you. It's about what God wants to do in you, to you, and through you. And when we reach that point, our worship becomes real. And that's where I want to be. You want to go there with me? Let's pray right now. God, we want to worship you the right way. For too long, we have parroted the schizophrenia of postmodern world that says you exist for our benefit if you exist at all. And when you don't do what we want, we'll refuse to believe in you. And so, Father, we confess that as sin. And we say, this is not about us. It's about you and your will, your plan, your desire. So free us from ourselves. Help us to understand that you are in heaven and we aren't. Your vantage point is greater. Your wisdom is higher. Your ways are more significant. And so we stop talking right now and we listen. Speak to us. Show us who you are. And reveal to us what you desire. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make Him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.